This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. And I'm going to begin reading from verse 36. You'll know this scripture very well, I'm sure. So Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which were James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Whenever you read through the Gospels, you cannot fail to notice the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though that he, we know that he is God in human flesh, even though that he is Emmanuel, God with us, and that he is literally the Word made flesh, according to John chapter 1. Someone many years ago said that there was times that Jesus was so much like God, it was though he wasn't man, but there was times he was so much like man, it was though he wasn't God. And there are times when his humanity shines through. And this is one of those times in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his humanity comes to the fore in a very stark way. It says that Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Then he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus came explicitly to do his Father's will. It was his passion. It was his purpose. It was his utter delight. And he desired that the Father's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, he taught us to to pray that very prayer, that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, the writer of the Hebrews, referring to Christ, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And so that was his purpose, to come to earth, to do the Father's will, to carry it out completely and wholly. And for over three years, Jesus walked the length and the breadth of the land, doing the revealed will of the Father. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the lepers, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Virtually every single day he taught, he preached, he ministered to the crowds, and many, many times he spoke to individuals personally. And in a way, that was a part of the Father's will that he delighted in that he excelled in, that he loved, that he found much pleasure in meeting the needs of the people. And in a way, that was for him the easy part, the enjoyable part. But all the while he knew that there was coming a day when he would have to do the Father's will and he would have to do something that no man in his right mind would ever, ever want to do. He would have to face this awful crisis of the cross. He would have to go through shame and humiliation and agony and great pain, a place where his body and mind and emotions would be stretched to the, the very limit of human endurance. You remember that day when he rode into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the fold of an ass, and the people were shouting their hosannas to him. But he knew that over the next few days that the greatest time of testing in all of his days on earth was about to happen. He knew that soon the crowds would melt away and others would rise up and instead of shouting Hosanna, they'd be shouting crucify him, crucify him. He knew that his disciples, the, one that he, the ones that knew him the most and loved him the most, yet he knew that they would desert him that they would deny him, they would even betray him. The Bible tells us that the will of God is good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. But it doesn't say that it's always easy to accept. And for many of us, for many of us, the will of God is good when it's convenient. It's good for us when it's pleasant, when it doesn't cost us anything. When the south winds blow softly and the sun is shining, then the will of God is good, we feel. But when the tough times come, when it seems to be that we're having second thoughts, when we're thinking, well, this cost me more than it pays, then we think, is this worth it? That's when we have got to make our greatest choices. Jesus, in all his years of ministry on earth, he knew that his day was coming, and it was coming soon, when he'd have to go to the cross. And he was building up for it. And he kept telling his disciples, even though they didn't believe him, and even though they weren't grasping what he was really saying, but he kept warning them, and he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. And that few days in Jerusalem he knew would be his last days on earth and what he was going to have to face. And so all that he had accomplished up to that point would have been of no avail whatsoever until he accomplished this part of the Father's will. Notice the words that is used to describe his feelings at that moment. Sorrowful, 
deeply distressed. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He fell on his face. Uh, Luke, another gospel writer writing about this, said that at that moment he, he sweated as it were great drops of blood. He was in agony, Luke said, in agony. This is before he went to the cross. This is before he was whipped and beaten and a crown of thorns pressed on his head and nails put into his hands and his feet. This is before that. He was in agony in the garden. All of this indicates to us the, the pressure, the, the mental and emotional pressure that he was under at that very moment, how extreme it was, exceedingly sorrowful, deeply distressed, the sheer weight of what was coming upon him was causing him great anguish of soul. You know, to fulfill the Father's will was going to cost Jesus everything. Uh, and there could be no middle ground in this. There could be no shortcut. There could be no half-hearted response. It was all or nothing. Either he could save himself or he could save the world, but he couldn't do both. There was a massive decision that was going to have to be made. Now, we have to be careful when we say such things because we're treading on holy ground here. And, and many Bible commentators would say there was not a chance that Jesus would have refused to go to the cross. That's why he came. And he knew that that day would come. So they say there's not a chance that he would ever refuse to go to the cross. And after all, after Christ in, in history, we know that there has been many Christian martyrs, that there has been people died cruel deaths for Christ and never flinched at it, never backed down, but did it. Perhaps the cup that he was saying to the Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, perhaps the cup was this agony, this pressure that he was going through, this when he knew that the weight of the sins of the world were going to come upon him. The Bible says he was made sin for us, that he was going to take the punishment for our sins upon him. And the weight of the whole sins of the whole world and yours and mine were coming upon him, beginning at this point. You know, Gethsemane it means the olive press. Gethsemane it was at the, is at the base of the Mount of Olives in the ancient times. That was the place where the olives were pressed, where they come under great pressure to squeeze that beautiful oil out of them. Without the pressure and the pressing, the oil wouldn't have flowed. And so Jesus, here he is in the, in the olive press, as it were, and the pressure of what he was facing and what he was going to have to do for you and for me was come upon him, and it was squeezing, it was pressuring the, almost the very life out of him. It's hard for us to even begin to grasp what he was going through at that very moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, the apostle Paul speaking of all the things that he went through as a believer. Uh, at one point he says, we were, we were pressed above measure. We despaired even of life. You know, sometimes we, 
we think about the apostle Paul, the great apostle, and we think he was superhuman to the point where he didn't feel anything, but he did. He says, we even despaired of our lives. It looked as if this is it. We've had it. We can't do anymore. We're pressed above measure. This is beyond what I can handle humanly. That's what he was saying. And he needed the help of God to do it. And Jesus, even though he's the son of God, but in his humanity, here he is being pressed above measure, overwhelmed by what he's facing. Leaving aside for a moment the mystery of all of that, whether it was facing the cross or whether it was this cup, leaving aside the arguments of that, what we can't say for sure is that Jesus was going to have to make a monumental decision. The Father's will or my will? Thank God he accepted the Father's will. There would be no church today. We wouldn't be talking about him today. Now obviously the stakes for us will never be as high as Christ was in choosing God's you will have to make. And sometimes it actually comes right down to family and friends. Really personal and in your face. In, in Matthew chapter 10, just back a little bit. Jesus speaking in Matthew 10 and part of what he's speaking about is the persecutions that was come because you're a Christian and a believer. 
And verse 32 says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And that seems a little bit strange because at the birth of Christ, the angel says, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But you have to understand who he's speaking to here. You see, the Jews want a Messiah who would bring peace to their nation and rid them of the hated Romans, these pagans who dominated them. And they wanted peace, they wanted shalom, they wanted prosperity, they wanted peace, uh, they wanted the land to be changed. But Jesus says, that's not what I've come to do. One day he will do that, but not right now. That's not what I've come to do. I haven't come to bring peace, but I've come to bring actually a sword. But what kind of a sword? For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now we read that here, and it maybe doesn't resonate much with you and me, because maybe we have never had to pay this price. But if you were a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a Hindu, or a Jew, or a Sikh, or a communist, or an atheist, maybe it would cause you great problems within your family circle. Maybe you'd be disowned. Maybe your father would say to you as a son, you're no longer my son. A mother may say, you're no longer my daughter. You know, if you were Jewish, you could almost accept any other religion except Christianity. And you'd maybe be disowned, maybe never spoken to again by your family. And if you're a Muslim, you may actually be put to death by your own family for accepting Christ. So that's the sword that he's talking about here. So in a way, we get off light. But if you were in that position, you could see how that would be a major, major decision that you'd have to make to accept the will of God. It may cost you everything. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And you can see how when Jesus mentions the cross, that generation, a cross only went one thing, death to them. That's what it meant. So Jesus here is not buttering anybody up. He's not making things easy. He's saying, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you something. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready to do that? He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake, though, he will find it. He will find it. In Matthew chapter 10, sorry, in Mark chapter 10. Verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running. Now, the other gospel writers, uh, Matthew and Luke, they tell us this one was a ruler. And uh, so he was a man of influence and status. One came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, 
What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. No one is holy, completely, entirely good. No one is perfectly good except God. So in a way, if you're calling me good, are you acknowledging who I am? Acknowledging my divinity and my lordship? No one is good but one that is God. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now notice how Jesus refers to the, the second part of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are, are Godward. But the last six are manward. And Jesus refers to the manward ones. He says, I, I've kept all these from my youth. Now that was a big claim to make, by the way. It's doubtful if he did. But his heart was towards that. He, this was a good young man. And he was a ruler, maybe a religious ruler, maybe a civic ruler. But there's something nice and good about this young man. And it seemed to be, well, he's trying his best. Uh, and, and he's looking for eternal life. Well, I mean, that's a good thing to search after, isn't it? Eternal life. Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack. Jesus had a way in personal conversations with individuals throughout Scripture of putting his finger right on the pulse of what was wrong. Remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? Go call your husband. <laughs> you know, she's wanting to talk all religious things. Go, go call your husband. She says, I haven't got one. He says, that's right. He says, you've had six men. <laughs> he knew all about her. So Jesus is aware of doing this, and he's doing this with this young man. In spite of all of the, the lovely things about this young man and all the good qualities about him, Jesus said, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come Take up your cross and follow me. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This was his God, and Jesus knew it. Lovely as he was, sincere as he was, approaching Jesus as nicely as possible, and, and recognizing and, and being mannerly and polite towards Jesus. But Jesus got right to the hub. And he said, in effect, money is your God. You want eternity. Yes, that's good. But money is your God in time. And he says to him, sell all that you have give it all away to the poor and come follow me. Now, Jesus not sent anybody with any money. That's what they're to do, become a Christian. Not at all. But he knew this young man had got a deep problem with material things. He was a materialist. 
Notice here in verse 22, but he was sad at that word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Luke 18 says he was very rich. He had great possessions. And when Jesus challenged him with that, to get rid of all and follow him, that was a bridge too far. Yes, he wanted eternal life for sure. He knew enough to want that, but he wanted this life. This life was more important to him than eternal life. And Jesus faced him with this, will you accept God's will for your life? God's will for your life, young man, is to get rid of that because that's your God. And come and follow me. But the young man went away, sorrowful, heartbroken, because he couldn't let go of his stuff. Now read on. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were astonished at his words. There, there was no contradiction here in their minds that somebody could be wealthy and not godly. I mean, these were hard-working businessmen. Most of them are fishermen. It was their business. So they didn't have a problem if you worked hard that you could earn well and that you could have riches. That didn't seem to be a problem to them at all. And they were astonished. But listen to this. The disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Ah. It wasn't the fact that he was a rich young ruler. It was the fact that he was trusting in his riches. And Jesus proved that when he asked him to get rid of them. He wouldn't do it. Because that's where his trust was. His security that's what he believed in in life. He had to have that to live his life. And Jesus said, no. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. <laughs> God's not against you having wealth if you have it. He's not against that. God's against any of us trusting in any measure of our riches. <laughs> you may not be wealthy, but what you have, that may be what you're trusting in. <laughs> it may not be much to somebody else, but it's much to you. And if Jesus says, let it go, for the kingdom's sake, let it go, then we're faced with a stark choice. And so... Time's moving on here, and I've got to finish up here very quickly. The Apostle Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Few people ever got the opportunity to be a traveling companion with a great apostle. Few. Fewer still got the chance to be personally mentored by the greatest missionary evangelist that ever lived. And God gave Demas that opportunity. Above all of the men in Israel, he had that opportunity. But there came to a point in his life in ministry, because he was in ministry with Paul, 
there came to a point in his life when he made a choice. And in effect, what he said was, God, not your will, but my will be done. And he walked away from the apostle and from the work of God because of this world. And here's the tragedy. One day Demas will have to stand before God and give an account of all the people that he could have helped and maybe would have found Christ through his ministry. Maybe he would have been saved or healed through his ministry, but didn't because he walked away. God is very interested in us accepting his will. Don't settle for anything less than God's will for your life. Don't sell yourself short. You will regret it for time and all eternity. The best thing you could ever do, the best decision you will ever make is to say yes to the will of God. Even though it may be the hardest decision you will ever make. Even though you may count the cost and say, Lord, this is going to be tough. I may lose some friends over this. I may lose some family member over this. I may lose my job over this. Somebody may say, I may lose my life over this. But it's the best choice I'll ever make in time and in eternity. My biggest regret, and I'm sure many of you will echo this, my biggest regret is that I waited so long to say yes to the will of God. Years I wasted. Wasted. Completely wasted when I should have said yes early on because I knew, <laughs> I knew, but I didn't, I resisted. And some of you have been done, ex did exactly the same as I did. You resisted and resisted to the point came where you could resist no longer and you says, yes, Lord. And that was the greatest decision you ever made in your whole life. Paul says that God's will is good, it's acceptable, it's perfect in Romans 12 and 2, Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul writes in Colossians 4, 12, he writes, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Ha. <sighs> You could be here today and you're wrestling with the will of God. You know what it is. You know what he wants you to do. You know that step he wants you to take. You know that decision you've got to make. And you're wrestling. Listen, I said reverently, for God's sake, do it. Make that decision. Say yes to the will of God because I promise you, it'll be the greatest decision you ever made. And you'll look back in your life and say, I'm glad I made that choice. I'm glad I took that step, because dear knows where my life would have been today if it hadn't have been for that. Oh, listen. Kenny, you know what we're going to do? We did it a couple of weeks ago because we run out of time. We're going to leave communion till tonight. You can do it tonight, Ken. I need just to quickly finish this. You need to know God's will because only God knows your future. 
Only God knows your future. We can't be certain about our tomorrows. We don't know what a day may bring forth. That's why God said in Proverbs 27 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. But God knows. God knows. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Note this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. You see, we can declare the beginning from the end. When we get to the end of something, we can look back and see how it began. But God, who's wiser than us, who's greater than us, he declares the end from the beginning. He knows where it starts, but he knows where it ends. He knows where your life began. He knows where your life ends. In all of time and all eternity. And that's why it's good for us to accept the will of God, because only God knows our future. So therefore we can put our hands into his hand for our future. Job 23 and 10, he knows the way that I take only God can say that. Only God knows the end from the beginning of every step you take. You need to accept God's will for only God knows what is best for you. What we like, what we want is not necessarily what is best and what we need. And some of us have found that out to our cost. The God who made you, the God who plans for you, knows what is ultimately the best for you. And his plans for us, Jeremiah said, are good, they're not for evil, to give us a hope and to give us a future. Psalm 25, 4 and 5, Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, on you I wait all the day. Thirdly, you need to know God's will, for God has a plan of blessing for you. <laughs> the God who counts the very hairs on your head has got a plan for your life. Whenever we have children, we get married, we have children, we have hopes, we have dreams for our kids, we want the very best for them. But before you were even born, God had a plan for you. Before your mom or dad ever knew you, God had a plan for your life. Incredible though that is. It's true. God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5 and says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before you were ever born, Jeremiah, I had already appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Nobody knew that, only me. But it happened. When I was a little boy sitting on my mother's knee at five years old, the local evangelist, who was a prophetic guy, he stopped the meeting in our house and he says, Mrs. Gowdy, your little son on your knee will become a preacher and he'll preach in other nations. And my mother never told me that till I was in ministry. And only then did she tell me that that was... She, like Mary, she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. What she, she says, what I believe was, if he was right, then it would happen. And if he was wrong, it wouldn't happen. But I wasn't going to put you under pressure to know that. You would find that out. If this is God, you'll find that out. And he did, and I found it out. 
God knew. I didn't know, but he knew. And I did my best to rebel against him, <laughs> sad to say, for a number of years. But he knew. He had a plan for my life. Paul says in Galatians 1.15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, when you read about Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul, that didn't seem right. It didn't seem it would ever happen. He was against Christians. He was putting them in prison. He stood there when Stephen was being stoned. He was a chief witness to it all. He hated them with a passion. But before he was ever born, God had a plan for him. It took a while for him to find it. You know, our, our friends, uh, Avi Mizraki, the Messianic pastor who preached here a couple of times, you know, he's in Tel Aviv, and they've got a downtown uh, coffee shop and storefront where people can walk past and invite them in and give them coffee and talk to them about Jesus. And he said that for a long time, they had, they had Orthodox Jews coming, standing outside their coffee shop and shouting at them and yelling at them and telling everybody, don't go in there, and they're this, that, the other. And he said, it was awful. But he says, I looked at them and thought, do you know what? That could be a Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> That could be a soul of Tarsus. So he says, even though it annoyed me greatly at times, but I understood that maybe that's a soul of Tarsus because that's what Saul would have done. But you see, God had a plan for his life. And he commands us not only to know his will, but to obey his will. Jonah did everything he could not to obey the will of God. Go preach to those Ninevites, those horrible, wicked Ninevites. Preach, tell them. And Jonah says, I don't want to, because I know what you're like. You're gracious, and you'll save them, and I don't want them saved. I want you to kill them and wipe them out. And so he ran. He got a ship, and he went to Tarshish, and God had to get him thrown overboard and get a great fish to swallow him up and then vomit him out, sorry for that, for lunchtime, on the seashore before he did the will of God. God wants us to obey the will of God. Ephesians 6 and 6 says, do the will of God from the heart. From the heart. I feel that today there's somebody here and you're wrestling greatly with the will of God for your life. Wrestling greatly. And my message to you this morning is, accept it. Submit to the will of God. It'll be the greatest thing you ever did. And time and eternity will prove it to you. And you'll look back and say, thank you, Lord God, that you were patient with me and you were merciful with me and you allowed me time to accept your will. And you'll be blessed. Amen. Yeah. Lord, we thank you that your will is good. It's perfect. It's acceptable. It's the best for us. There is nothing greater than your will for my life. And I thank you, Lord, that you were patient and kind with me and generous. And, Lord, you allowed me all of that time to receive your will. And I thank you that you did. Yeah. I've never regretted it for one second. And so we bless you. And so, Lord, today, those among us, Lord, who are struggling with this idea of accepting your will. I pray that today that they will take courage and act in faith and trust believing 
that it is good for them and perfect for them and acceptable to them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.